Awesome. Okay, well, while people are coming on, um, we've got a lot of stuff that we're going to be covering today. I'm really excited. Uh, we're in John chapter 5 tonight, and yeah, we've got a lot. In fact, we're not going to get through the entire chapter of John because there's just a lot of content, and I want to make sure that, you know, we have the time to cover everything appropriately. Um, so that's what we're going to do. But for those of you who are new coming in um, and have never been to one of these Bible studies before, pretty much what I do is I'm going to pray first over our evening together, and then I'm going to read through John chapter 5. Today we're just going to do verses 1 through 18, so we're not going to finish the whole chapter. And then I'm going to go back. I've got notes, so if you see me looking over here, it's because I've got my notes right here. Um, and then I'm going to go through step by step, verse by verse, and just kind of commentate on things. Um, and then at the very end, I'll take questions uh, and if we run out of, so this thing has a one hour time limit, limit, if I run out of time on this, I'll just restart a new live um, and save this video for other people to watch. Okay, so that being said, um, <laughs> let's, let's pray together and then we'll dive right into the reading. So God, we just, we want to thank you. We want to come together tonight as a family in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ before you to hear from your word, um, to learn from your word. God, I just thank you for this opportunity, for the technology to be able to do this. We just ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, that he would be opening our eyes to what you want to say to us tonight, what you want to learn. Teach us and allow us to learn from your word, God. We ask that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, um, and that we would glorify you with everything that we say and do tonight. Allow me to speak what you want me to speak and to avoid saying things that you don't want me to say. So I just thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. So John chapter 5, I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. For those of you who are new, um, grab your Bibles, follow along. That would be awesome. So just verses 1 through 18 tonight. So let's dive right in. Oh, and before, before I get started with the reading, though, just for context, the last day we did chapter 4, last time we were together, uh, and that was where Jesus came into Samaria. So he met the Samaritan woman at the well. He had that whole amazing conversation with her there. Um, and then he went into, I believe it was Capernaum. No, it wasn't Capernaum, it was Cana. Um, that was where he did his original miracle with the water and the wine. So he's in, he went to Cana, and that's where he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. It was like the first miracle that he did where he wasn't actually present in the location of the miracle happening. Okay, so that just happened. Um, and then now we are here where he's going back up to Jerusalem for another feast. So let's read. Verse 1. After these things, so after he healed and was spending time in Cana, after these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, uh, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. 
Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he said to them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They, said to, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, we got some really mad Jewish leaders. Uh, all right, so let's, let's back it up. So Jesus is going back up to Jerusalem. Now remember, there's probably a lot of time that's passing between each of these cases that John is writing about, right? So um, I want to point out here that while we're not told what feast Jesus went up to, right? Um, it doesn't say, it says a feast of the Jews. We're not really told which one it was. It's probably a, a lesser feast, one that people were not required to go to Jerusalem for. Um, and so Bible scholars have done a lot of calculations to try and figure out like what exactly was this feast. And so what they've done is they've looked at this very, very likely as being the feast of Purim. All right. So Jesus in John 4 35, if you turn back there, he's saying, um, he's commenting about the harvest, right? We were talking about how the prophets like prepared the harvest of souls and now the disciples actually get to go in and harvest. Well, Jesus was using a figure of speech that was really common at the time when he said in verse 35, do you not say there are, then, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, so on and so forth. So that's saying there are four months and then the harvest was referring to the time of December that they would have been in. Right. So that's very likely they were in, you know, winter time um, in Samaria when he was mentioning this. Now, Jesus is going up for this other feast and the only feast that happened on Shabbat or on the Sabbath during AD 25 all the way up to AD 35. If you look around there, it was the Feast of Purim. Um, and so this is what makes people think it must have been that feast. So what exactly is the Feast of Purim? Because I think it has some context here that we need to look into. And I found it really interesting. Um, so the, the, the Festival of Purim is celebrated on the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Adar, right? So this is late winter, early spring. So we're probably somewhere around March, February, March, somewhere in there. All right. It's kind of like a mix between our New Year's and Halloween festivals all in one, except it's a special Jewish festival that had nothing to do with the occult. All right. So and so for those of you who are kind of looking for interesting ways to celebrate and have like dressing up and stuff like that, this is the Jewish Jewish festival where people started dressing up. And I'm going to explain why. All right. So um, this particular feast uh, is about the book of Esther, right? So it's about the history of what happened with Esther. Um, and so typically what happens during this feast is they read through uh, Megillah, which is their name for the book of Esther. Uh, they recount what they call the Purim miracle. All right. And I'm going to explain what that is in a second. 
Um, this is done on the eve of Purim and then again on the following day. So that would have been a reason why Jesus would have gone to the temple and why he would have seen this guy who got healed at the temple. Uh, in addition to that, one of the things that they used to do during this feast is they would give gifts to the poor. That's going to become important in a minute. All right. So they would give money gifts to the poor or food or something like that. Um, and then they also would dress up. So part of the reason why they would dress up is because of the whole reason behind Purim. And let me explain what that is right now. So if we look back, for those of you who've never read the book of Esther, it's right before the book of Job. It's only 10 chapters, super short, um, and it's really fascinating. And so pretty much what happens is there's this divinely orchestrated set of events that essentially saves the Jewish people from a massive massacre plot that the government had been planning behind the back of the king. So at this time, the Jews were enslaved to the Babylonians, to the Persian government, okay? And the book of Esther opens up with this really weird situation where the king of Persia, his name's King Ahasuerus, long name, hard to pronounce, um, and pretty much he is kicking his queen out because she, he was drunk during his birthday party or something like that, and she was not about to dance provocatively for him like he wanted her to. And so he said, okay, you're no longer my queen. And he kicked her out of the kingdom. So that's like crazy, right? Um, kind of shows how secular these people were. So the king decides to have a beauty pageant and bring all of these wonderful women in who had never been married before. Um, and he wanted to find a new queen. And that's where Esther comes into play. But she didn't tell anybody she was a Jew because the Jews were enslaved to the Persians. So she goes in, she ends up winning this pageant of sorts. The king takes her as his new queen. And in the meantime, her uncle, Mordecai, uncovers this massive plot from the king's head man, Haman, who he was pretty much planning to have the people go out and kill all the Jews in one day. Um, and he even got the king to sign off on it without the king knowing what he was signing off on. So he pretty much tricked this whole massacre plot into existence. So Esther finds out about this. She uncovers the plot, explains it to the king, unveils the fact that she's a Jew to the king. And the king is like, what? Somebody's going to try and kill the people of my queen? That's not going to happen. So he creates this new law that allows the Jewish people to fight back. And so pretty much what happens is there's a reverse massacre. Um, and the Jews rise up and they kill a lot of the Persians who are planning to kill the Jews. And, and at the end of this massacre that happens, the Jews sit back down. They're still enslaved to the Babylonians and the Persians, but they feasted and they celebrated the fact that they were alive and that God delivered them and uncovered this massive plot. So, um, so anyhow, so that's kind of what we have the situation here. All right. So the 13th of Adar, the Jews mobilize, kill their enemies, and then on the 14th, they have this festival. And so that is what would have been celebrated by Jesus at this time. It's a lesser feast. It's not as big as Passover, um, but that kind of sets the stage for what we're about to see here. All right, so, so we enter in. Jesus is going up for this feast, and it says here that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called Bethesda. Now, we know that the Sheep Gate exists because we can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 3 and chapter 12 were told that they built this sheep gate. Um, and it's probably named this because there were sheep that were actually sacrificed near this gate for the temple offerings. All right. 
Um, it wasn't, some, some translations refer to it as a sheep pool. It was not a sheep pool. It was a sheep gate. And there was a pool near the gate. Now, there's two pools that um, Paul, <laughs> that John talks about in his gospel. Okay, so there's the pool of Bethesda, where we get this healing of this crippled man. And then there's the pool of Siloam. And that's where we get the healing of the blind man later on in chapter 9. But the interesting thing, so both of these pools were dug deep into the ground. Um, and that's kind of, if you guys have seen the photo I put up on Instagram today, that's the pool of Bethesda, right? So they're sunk into the ground and they are Jewish mikvahs, right? So this was a pool of purification that had running water that flowed into it, that the people would go into and completely submerge and cleanse themselves. Now we've already talked about the purification rituals, right? Think back to the, the chapter two with the whole like wine situation and the running water that we've talked about, right? So it was a purification pool. Um, now, Bethesda means house of mercy. It originally would have been for the Jews, for a purification thing. But the interesting thing that archaeologists have found is that it's not, it was not, and it didn't end up being a Jewish pool. The Romans took it over for one of their gods. All right. So archaeologists, based on the fact that um, John tells us it has five porticos, so five columns that would have like, sort of um, stone laid out over the top of them to provide shade. So during the summertime, it was open and breezy, but there was still shade for the people when they were bathing and stuff. Um, they were able to identify this. And so let me just see here. Um, so in my notes, I have that this pool was likely started out as a Jewish ceremonial pool for a mikvah, right, for purification. But the other interpretations that we've found since then um, include that it actually had a foot on the pool itself with a dedicated inscription to the Roman god Asclepius. Again, hard name to pronounce, but this is a god of healing. And in fact, the symbol of like the, I think it's a staff with a snake going up it, is the medical symbol that we use today in our hospitals. All right. So it's like dedicated to the god of healing from the Roman time. So the Romans took over this mikvah pool that the Jews had built originally in Jerusalem, and they turned it into the pool of healing for their god Asclepius, and they actually had a temple to that god nearby in Jerusalem. Okay, so the pool of Bethesda was not a Jewish pool anymore. It was now a Roman god of healing pool. All right, so the pool of Siloam, if you wanted to get purified before any temple rituals, you had to go to the purification pool of Siloam. That's why we don't see Jesus telling anybody, go wash in the pool of Bethesda, right? Um, so I'm going to explain here, too, the interesting thing. So we read about that, um, and then it says here, In these lay a multitude, verse 3, of those who were sick, blind, and lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons to stir the pool. What's going on there? If you look really closely, your Bible should have this footnoted. Um, the end of verse 3, where it talks about waiting for the moving of the waters, and then verse 4, do not exist in the early manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Why? The reason, the very likely reason why this is the case is because these verses were added in by a scribe later on to explain to the naive reader what was happening with the Pool of Bethesda. Right? So people in Jerusalem already knew what was going on. The Jews already understood about the Pool of Bethesda and that it was, you know, belonged to the Romans for their God and stuff. Um, so a scribe from what they believed to probably be Western Europe added this in as kind of like an addendum to allow people to understand. But their choice of the words for angel of the Lord is 
probably not appropriate in this case. So this is why it's really important to look at the footnotes and read what's going on here. Um, because it wasn't an angel of the Lord. The, you know, God's angel is not stirring this pool. This is a pool dedicated to a demonic entity, essentially. All right. So interesting stuff. Um, scholars believe that this pool and the adjoining temple were established by the Roman garrison in honor of Asclepius, their god of medicine and health. During the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, a number of Roman structures were actually built in and around the city, uh, including an arena. They had baths and a theater. There was also a pagan shrine, um, and then other signs of Roman presence would have been outside the city walls, which would make it less offensive to the Jews within Jerusalem itself. So today, the Pool of Bethesda is still within the walls of Jerusalem. It's in the Muslim quarter of the old city. So if you go there today, you can see this pool. It's kind of cool. Um, Asclepius was one of the more popular gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, um, and over 400 shrines to this god were reportedly functioning throughout the entire empire at that time. Um, so, of course, because everybody wants not only, you know, uh, Athena, I think she, goddess of love, was really popular. And then this guy, goddess of health, or god of health, sorry, was really popular. So, interesting, though, because here we clearly have a Jewish man who is sick, who he's not going to the temple and to, you know, the temple of the Lord for healing. He's not going to the Jewish scholars for healing and understanding. He's sitting here by a false god's by a false god's pool of healing, um, seeing if this Greek Roman god is going to stir the waters and he might get in. And he's been waiting here for 38 years. Like the guy is the exact example of what it means to be an unbelieving Jew. <laughs> okay, I found that really interesting. I had no idea that any of this existed until I dug into the scriptures today. Um, okay, so. Really interesting to notice, as I mentioned, oh, okay, I already talked about that, about how Jesus does not command him to go down to um, the pool to wash. He does, though, for the pool of Siloam. And, okay, so let's just see here. Um, all right, uh, one other side note I'm going to make about the pools, uh, particularly the pool of Siloam, which we're going to see later, okay? Um, one of the things that we can tell the difference between these two We've already talked about how the pool at Bethesda had a, an inscription that was written to the god Asclepius, all right? On the other hand, the pool of Siloam, it actually had um, a bell inscribed on it that was associated, archaeologists have looked at it, and it's associated with the priestly attire of the temple, okay? So it's associated with God's priests. Um, in addition to that, there was also an engraving of a menorah that was uncovered at that pool recently. So... Again, it's ritually used for purification. Um, and of course, this is in accords with the records in the Talmud, which is again that spoken law that was eventually written down by the Jews, uh, because there was a tradition performed for the Feast of Tabernacles, we'll talk about that later, where a priest would take a golden vessel down to the Pool of Siloam, would fill it up with water from where people had been bathing, which is kind of gross. <laughs> um, but anyway, they would bring it back to the temple and then they would pour the water as a drink offering on one side of the altar, while another priest poured an offering of wine on the other side of the altar. And that was a drink offering that was given to God. So that pool, a good pool, a holy pool by Jewish standards. Pool of Bethesda, not a holy pool. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's look down here again. So the man was sick for 38 years. Now, some people have referenced this back to um, 
the Israelites wandering in the desert for 38 years plus the two years that they had been around um, to get to. I'm going to go into that later, actually. We're not going to talk about that today because then that, that'll take us too off, <laughs> off track. I get too excited. There's so much information in this, guys. It's kind of crazy. Okay, well, let's stay, stay on track. Um, okay, so he was there for 38 years sick. When Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. So Jesus knew. Okay, he didn't, maybe he knew about the guy before. Um, I'm more inclined to think that he had a word of knowledge about this man and knew his immediate condition simply by looking at him. All right, so he saw him lying there um, and he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, I wanted to look at this statement a little bit more in depth. Do you wish to get well? What exactly is Jesus asking here? So yes, he's asking if the man wants to be healed, but the the specific word for do you wish or do you want to get well is I looked at it in Greek. The Greek word is the word fellow. All right. So fellow is a very strong version of to will something. All right. It actually means to be determined to resolve yourself to do something. And this word occurs when Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22 is talking to the 4,000 people that he had been preaching to and teaching on the hillside. And he says to his disciples, I will not let these people leave unless we give them something to eat. He had determined himself to not allow those people to leave until they provided food for them. That's the same type of word that he's using here. Do you wish to get well? Do you want to get well? Are you determined to get well? Okay. So he's asking a specific question. It's not a passive, do you want to get well? Are you looking forward to you know, improving your health, he's saying, do you resolve yourself to get well? Are you actively looking for healing? Okay. Um, okay. So then the man says to Jesus, he kind of doesn't really answer his question. He simply says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Um, he doesn't seem really angry at all. His tone is kind of resolved. He's like, Hey, I don't have a servant like all of these other people have, or even a friend who is here to help me get into the water when it first gets stirred up by, there's a whole process behind that. It probably had to do with the, um, the Roman kind of priest that would go in and empty the rainwater into the pool and stir it up. Anyway, that's for another day too. <laughs> um, but anyhow, he's pretty much saying, look, I do want to get well. I've been sitting here for 38 years trying to get well, but nobody's here to help me, so I can't. If I could, I would, right? And so Jesus does not say anything in response to that. All he says is get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Three things. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And with those three things, Jesus just did some crazy stuff, okay? So first of all, his word for get up it can also be translated as rise. This is the same word Jesus uses when he's talking to dead people. I found that really interesting. It's the word egairo, all right, in, in Greek. Um, it's the same word that Jesus, so he uses it to, to tell people who are reclining to sit up, but he also uses the same word when he's calling people back to life. In Luke chapter 7, verse 14, and Luke 8, verse 54. So this is where, you know, he's calling the little girl who was dead to get up from her sleep, right? From her sleep, she was dead. 
Um, there's also a case where there's a procession bringing a dead boy in a coffin out to be buried in, in uh, the tombs. And Jesus sees this procession going by and sees how sad the mother is. And so he lays his hand in the coffin and he calls the boy to get up. And the boy gets up and he's alive. So when somebody's dead and you tell them to get up, do you think they're going to hear you? No, they're not going to hear you. <laughs> Their body is dead. All right. So Jesus is not only just speaking to the man's body. He's not just speaking to him physically. He's speaking to his spirit when he's saying, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Um, and I found that really cool. He's doing a creative miracle here. And his words, remember back to Genesis, like God spoke the world into existence. Jesus is God. He is speaking into existence the, you know, the strengthening of this man's body and the healing of this man's body. And I found that super cool. Um, okay, so yeah, so he, not only is he using the word rise or get up to call the man to get up, but it appears he was breathing life into his very essence. That was supernatural. Okay, so we covered that. <laughs> um, so the man immediately got up and he walked and he picks up his mat. Now John clarifies in verse nine, immediately the man became well picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Why did John have to tell us that it was the Sabbath? Because that was a big no-no. That was super taboo. What just happened? Picking up your mat on a Sabbath? Not good. Um, now, Sabbath, for the Jews, they also call it Shabbat. All right? It just means this, the day of rest. Um, so Jews were absolutely against doing any work at all on Shabbat. All right, so carrying a mat by Jewish standards of the times was definitely work. Um, now, you could carry a mat in your own home, right? But this guy was in public, and that was, like, completely expressively said to be, like, do not do this. Um, so, essentially, according to the Jewish scholars, Jesus was causing this man to sin by their laws that they made, <laughs> okay? They're not God's laws, obviously, because Jesus never sinned. He is God. Um Really, Jesus was displaying that these man-made laws were simply man-made. They were not God-made. Um, in fact, this practice, so the practice of Shabbat and um, not working on Shabbat continues in Orthodox circles today in, in Israel. So I wanted to read a quick excerpt from a Jewish site. It's called Chabad.org. So C-H-A-B-A-D.org. Really fascinating. It's not messianic. Um, it's strictly Jewish, but there's some really interesting stuff on there. Um, so the modern observance of Shabbat, it says that the sages of the Talmud, remember that spoken oral law that they passed down, uh, enumerated 39 forbidden creative acts that we should not do on Shabbat, the Jews, right? Not us. Christians, we're not under the law, we're under Christ. So these sages explain that each of these acts is a father and under these acts, you have many offsprings. So there's one act that you definitely can't do, and there's many subsections of those acts that you cannot do at all either. Um, so they're all forbidden because of their intrinsic similarities to each other. So the first group of 11 acts are related to the process of making bread, plowing, sowing, reaping, kneading, baking. The second group are comprised of 13 steps needed to make clothing, right? From shredding to tearing to sewing. The third group of acts come from nine stages of scribal arts, which use parchment. So you've got writing, erasing, anything to do with scribing. 
Um, and then finally, the last group has to do with building and destroying, burning and extinguishing, finishing a product, transporting things through a public domain, carrying a mat. <laughs> All right, so each of these 39 acts have many subcategories and interpretations. So they say to the Jews today that you need to learn the ins and outs of Shabbat observance by reading books and by observing Shabbat in action. Um, so here's an example of common activities that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat in Israel today, if you were an Orthodox Jew, okay? Writing, erasing, and tearing, business transactions, driving or riding in cars or vehicles, shopping, using a, a telephone, turning off or on any electrical appliances, lights, TV, radio, air conditioner, alarm clocks, <laughs> cooking, baking, kindling a fire, gardening and grass mowing, doing laundry. You can't do any of those on Shabbat today. That's crazy, right? So, um, of course, the Jews immediately target this guy when he picks up his map, or mat, um, because these same, these laws that they have today are the same laws they had back then, and they still haven't learned. Um, I wanted to make a quick digression here, though, for a sec, because I think it's important to, you guys know, I know, I normally don't talk about end times, but you know that that's part of my passion. So I want to turn quickly to Matthew chapter 24, verse 20. Now, remember, when Jesus is talking to the Jews here about the abomination of desolation that's going to come into the temple and like kind of like desolate the temple um, or sorry, desecrate the temple. He's saying to them here in verse 20, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, this is one of the reasons why people get Matthew 24 mixed up with, you know, believers versus Jews. This was written for the Jews. Why did Jesus say, pray that your flight will not be on a Sabbath? It's because he's speaking for the benefit of the Orthodox Jews who wouldn't know him, who wouldn't recognize him until these things happened. Okay, it's not written for the Christian believer who already knows that Jesus is going to be coming for the rapture of the church. All right. So he's saying here, pray it's not going to be on a Sabbath because these Orthodox Jews who they won't even get into a car to drive, they're just going to be sitting there sitting ducks and the Antichrist is going to come and completely kill a lot of people because he desolates the temple and he's going to go for the Jews. So this is why it can't, he want to pray that it's never going to be on a Sabbath so that these guys with their, you know, laws stuck in their heads are not going to have that problem in the way for them. They'll still be able to flee. All right, so Jesus was already looking out for these people, even though they didn't even believe in him. Like, that's crazy. So that's the sticklers that we're dealing with here with the man and his mat. All right, so the Jews, verse 10 and 11, um, they say to him, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So they target the man. They claim that what he's doing is unlawful behavior. Um, and so, of course, in addition to this, it also identifies that the guy is, you know, waiting. He's a Jew right? Waiting by the, the pool of this Roman God, because Jews aren't going to care if a Roman disobeys the laws of Shabbat, right? But for a Jew, they're going to point it out and they're going to be like, my dear, that's wrong. Not right. Okay. So the man deflects the problem and he says, well, the man who heals him, he doesn't know who he is, right? And he's like, well, he has the authority to tell me these things because he healed me. Okay, so he told me to pick up my mat and walk. And the Jews are like, well, who told you? And he, he didn't know because he didn't know Jesus' name. Jesus, in the meantime, snuck away. Now, why was there a crowd at this pool at the time? Perhaps 
it's very unlikely that the pool was being stirred up, right? That only happened what we see a couple times of the year. But more likely, this takes us back to the Feast of Purim. With the Feast of Purim, we have this giving of gifts to the homeless people, right? Giving of gifts to those in need, sharing money, giving food, right? And so people would have been, you know, going to this pool to target the people in need there. Um, and so that's probably the reason that Jesus was even in this place in the first, in the first instance. Okay. So, cause I've always wondered like, why would Jesus, when I started reading about this and understanding the context of the fact that this was a pool used for, you know, worship to Asclepius, believing that he's going to come and stir the waters. Why would people be going there? Why would Jesus be spending time around there? Um, and it's very likely that he was observing this tradition of Purim to go and to offer something good to somebody less fortunate than yourself. Um, and so he would have known with, along with his disciples, that these less fortunate people would be at this pool waiting around for healing. Uh, and Jesus offered a gift of healing to this person on this beautiful day where they're observing the fact that Jews had life um, and they were saved from this massacre. And I think that's just beautiful. So, all right. So sometime later, we don't know how long, Jesus sees the man in the temple and he tells him, sin no more. Now look at this. It says, verse 14, Jesus found this man in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Interesting. So he says, do not sin anymore. It appears that Jesus is implying that this man's predicament came about because of his sin. All right. That's kind of what he's applying by saying you don't want anything worse to happen to you than what just happened to you. Right? You got sick and you were super weak because of your sin. So don't go back to that sin anymore. Um, furthermore, he gives this dire warning, right? So this should also be a sharp warning to us as believers that we're not supposed to turn to our sin again. Okay? So we are never to go back. When it says repent, it means do a 180 degree turn and go in the opposite direction from where you were going, right? We're to fight against the cyclical patterns of evil behavior, of sinful behavior, all right? And we can do that by requesting aid from the Holy Spirit. So if you guys struggle with breaking that pattern of cyclical sin that you just keep getting stuck in and doing over and over again, you need to ask the Holy Spirit for help. And I would recommend that you go read Romans chapters 7 and 8. That'll give you some great insight into, because Paul dealt with the same issue with believers who were struggling with the same thing. And he wrote the book of Romans for a large portion of people who were stuck with dealing with that sin nature. So chapter seven and eight are really good. Um, so that gives some insight on that. So Jesus is warning him. He says, turn from your sin and do not do it anymore. All right. He's probably also offering a warning to the guy about going back to the Roman temple <laughs> and offering to this God right? Or looking to these false gods for healing. He was telling him, you know, follow the Lord your God. You are a Jewish man. Follow the Lord your God from now on out and don't return to your sinful behavior anymore. Um, so then of course the man, he's all excited. He's like, oh, I figured out who it was who healed me. It was Jesus. So he goes to the, <laughs> to the temple and uh, he goes to the scholars, to the Jews who were persecuting Jesus. And he tells them, he says, oh, it was Jesus that healed me. Now, I don't think he was tattling on Jesus, right? I don't think he, he meant him any harm. Um, rather, he was trying to provide evidence for the fact that the man who healed him had also the authority to tell him that he could pick up his mat on the Sabbath. All right. Um, so Jesus had that authority. Unfortunately, because of the things that this man said to the Jews, to the scholars, 
they actually hated Jesus more and they began to persecute him. Um, some versions of the manuscript say in verse 16 that they sought to slay him. That doesn't occur in early versions of the manuscript. It's kind of an addendum that, again, a scribe probably added in. It's not in my version of the Bible, but it might be in some versions. The King James Version, I think, has it in there. Um, but it does show up in verse 18. So in verse 17, it says, He, Jesus, answered them, the Jewish scholars, and he said to them, My father is working until now. I myself am working. Oh, this made them mad because then because of that thing that he said and because of what he did to the man, it says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted Jesus dead right now um, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, okay, but he was also calling God his own father. And as a result of calling God his father, he was making himself be the son of God, which he is. We know that. Um, but for them, that was him putting himself on equal level with God. And to them, they saw Jesus as just a man. They didn't realize that he was their Messiah. They still don't realize he's their Messiah. And, uh, and so for them, that was blasphemy and the punishment was death. So it's interesting because the rest on the seventh day, now we're talking about the, sh the Shabbat, right? The Sabbath. The rest on the seventh day after the creation of the world, it was completed after these works of creation, all right? So the Jews had taken this whole Sabbath rest situation to a whole new level. They were imposing laws on how many steps you could take, where you could go, all of these different things. Now, if God were to stop all of his actions on Shabbat, we would cease to exist. In fact, the world would stop existing, okay? Why is this? Well, it says in Colossians, some insight into this. Okay, so Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 to 17, it says, for by him, by God, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So God is the ever constant source of life and existence. Without this work at holding things together, going on all the time, nothing would ever exist. It would just cease, right? So for the Jews to claim that Jesus' healing on Shabbat was breaking the law, it was ridiculous because God's law was not broken. Jesus is God, right? He was simply extending his life-sustaining power to restore a healthy condition to the creation that he was already sustaining by his spoken word. Okay, so, so now you can kind of see from our perspective, knowing Jesus is the Messiah, that what the Jews were proclaiming was completely ridiculous. Um, but to Jesus, it was the exact beautiful form of him, you know, healing this man, restoring him to how he was supposed to be without under the curse of sin, right? Out from under the curse. Um, so yeah, so of course the Jews hated him because of this. And so we're going to see next week how Jesus goes on to answer them and to answer the fact that, you know, they are trying to kill him. He comes back with a very good rebuttal and essentially explains why he's calling himself the son of God. Um, and I think that's going to be exciting to get into. But that is more or less what I have for the text for today. I wanted to leave a little bit of time for some questions and follow up and stuff. Um, but yeah, I learned, I learned a fair bit, actually. I had no idea about the Pool of Bethesda before, um, and its connection with the whole Roman worship situation. So 
if you guys have any questions, post them in the comments. Um, and I'll just, I'll stay on and we can chat about stuff if you want me to explain, expand on, on certain things. I do want to, just for the sake of this, keep it centered around this particular text. So I can look up, um, I can look up some stuff here for other references. So you're talking about Matthew 2111. Um, yeah, I'll take a look into it. So explain Matthew 2111, where the crowd calls Jesus a prophet. I'm confused on this one. It's off topic. Okay. <laughs> um, well, it's the only question we got right now. So we'll go for that. Uh, okay, so when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Yeah, so Jesus was speaking the word of God and he was healing and doing miracles, right? So people, by this point in Jesus' ministry, where he was coming in, because this is the triumphal entry, right? Where they're putting down the palm branches. They're claiming Jesus is the Messiah. And they knew, according to the Old Testament, that the Messiah was also going to prophesy, right? And Jesus had prophesied. He had spoken words of knowledge about people's lives. Um, if you guys remember John chapter what was it? Three or one? Nope. John chapter one. When Jesus saw Nathaniel under the fig tree before anybody even showed up to tell Nathaniel about Jesus, um, Jesus saw him under the fig tree. So he had a word of knowledge about Nathaniel and Nathaniel knew that he did. So that's why he, he calls him, uh, what does he say? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, right? Um, in addition, I think it was the Samaritan woman who referred to him as a prophet, right? So verse 19 of chapter four, the woman said to him, the Samaritan woman, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet because Jesus said to her, you have, you don't just have no husband right now. The man you're living with isn't your husband and you had five husbands before that. So he's prophesying. He is telling her something that he should have had no knowledge about and so that's why the people would have said that in Jerusalem when Jesus made his triumphal entry there in Matthew chapter 21, because Jesus was a prophet. He was, he was giving words of knowledge. He had insight into people's lives that nobody knew about. So hopefully that answers your question um, about that. Off topic, but good one, because <laughs> I think we were able to sort of refer back to some of the readings that we've done so far as well. Um, but any other questions, guys? Folks are, you guys are quiet tonight. <clears throat> so are there still prophets today? Yes, there are still people who have. So the gift of prophecy is, I mean, I think it's in Revelation. Let me see here where it refers to um, the spirit of prophecy is in the word that Jesus speaks. Like Jesus is the example of the spirit of prophecy. Um I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere in the book of Revelation. Um, but yes, so there are still prophets today. There are still people because Jesus' testimony goes throughout the world. And the Spirit of God gives words of knowledge to people. My dad has had words of knowledge about people. He he works as a physician. Um and he has had words of knowledge about people's predicaments where nobody knows what's going on with their health and the Lord will tell him and he will explain. And sure enough, that's the exact thing that's happening. So the Lord 
works through that situation to touch people's lives and to allow him to share the gospel with them, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, gift of prophecy is still a thing today. Um, a basic question. Don't no, there's no basic questions. Um, okay. So Jesus was a Jew, but yet the Jews don't believe he is the Messiah. Yes. So Jacqueline, the reason why the Jews don't accept Jesus as their Messiah, um, is because they believed, and this was a problem that some of the Jews even had in Jesus days, right? Even some amongst his disciples. Remember his disciples thought Jesus was coming as a King, right? So they had the triumphal entry and then his disciples were like, Hey, when are we going to go and crown you King? When are we going to go and take over the whole Roman empire and wage war and stir up all the, and the, and Jesus was like, no, I didn't come to rule. I didn't come to, div to divide people up like this. I came to fulfill the law. And he's like, you don't understand. I'm coming back as a king. So the Jews had it the wrong way. And they, their eyes, God purposefully closed their eyes to the scriptures um, and to what was happening at the time because he wanted the salvation of the Gentiles as well. He wanted to offer salvation to the Gentiles. And the only way he'd be able to do that is if the Jews had their eyes closed and rejected Jesus. So then Jesus offers salvation to the Gentiles. Now, of course, Jews still come to know Jesus as their savior. There's many Messianic Jews out there. Um, but in general, the people's eyes and hearts are still hardened to Jesus. Uh, and it's the same with the Muslims that you see. A lot of Muslims, they have the same, you know, they understand Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of that history, but they reject Jesus as Messiah. They think he's a great prophet, um, but they don't accept him as, you know, their, their Messiah because he didn't come the way that everybody expected him to come, but he's going to return the way they expected him to make his first coming. And that's as a king with judgment um, and, and righteousness. So... <clears throat> Oops, sorry. I'm just scrolling down here. Ah, I can't scroll. Okay. Um, how long does it take for you to prep these studies? So I usually just take Friday and go easy with it. And uh, it depends, like three hours, four hours, maybe maybe more, maybe less. Depends on the, on the topic. I use um, Blue Letter Bible and what's the other app here? Um, Bible Hub. Bible Hub is amazing because there's so many different commentaries on it, um, and there's just a lot of insight in there. Will I ever do a study on Revelation and end times? Probably not, <laughs> just because I'm not, my eschatology, I don't know. I There's so much insight into Revelation, and I feel like it's better handled by people who actually dedicate you know, their lives to doing this sort of stuff like Amir Safadi and Jack Hibbs and, you know, Jan Markell. Um, it, it's a possibility in the future if the Lord leads me to that, but it's something that he's kind of steered me away from. Uh, just because I feel like my knowledge of end times literature, especially the book of Revelation, my understanding of the symbology behind it, is not sufficient right now to be able to teach people. Um, they could change if the Lord, you know, decides that he wants to go in that direction with me. But right now I'm really passionate about the gospels and Jesus ministry and also the Old Testament. In my personal study time, I'm going through the Old Testament. Just got into First Chronicles um, yesterday and finished Second Kings. And guys, like if you haven't read through the Old Testament, you really should. 
Um, it's so rich with under like history. And remember last day with John 4, we were talking about how the Samaritans came to be, and it was all because of the breakoff between Judah and Israel into two sub-kingdoms, right? Um, and I was reading through 2 Kings and reading about, you know, the kings of Judah versus the kings of Israel and how the kings of Israel were super wicked. Um, and I'm just like, man, really interesting to see how the wickedness of the kings of Israel ended up leading into all of the, you know, messed up beliefs that the Samaritans ended up having and their whole like retaliation with stuff against the, the Jews in Judah. It was just really fascinating. Um, how are we supposed to celebrate God's holidays? I've given up Halloween and no longer will be celebrating Christmas. Well, okay, so I'll tell you this one. Halloween, I do not celebrate Halloween. It's completely dedicated to, you know, the dead, right? Christmas, on the other hand, a lot of people celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birthday. Now, we know it's not Jesus' birthday, but it is a day where the world comes together to celebrate his life, right? So you get a lot of people who go to Catholic Mass on that day and... For us, as a family, my parents and I and my brother, um, we celebrate Jesus' birthday. So we actually do a birthday celebration for him. And we do like a birthday cake and we read the Christmas story of how Jesus was born and everything. And we do that Christmas morning as a family. And then in the evening, we have like a feast and celebrate together um, and do like we sing happy birthday to Jesus. So we've turned it from being, you know, oriented around just gift giving to each other to praising Jesus, right? To focusing it on him. Um, and I don't, I don't have an issue with celebrating Christmas. We're not required to celebrate the Jewish feasts, right? We're not under the law. And, but there is a beauty in celebrating them. So we do Passover every once in a while, we'll celebrate. Um, but uh, like the other feasts and stuff, a lot of it is around rituals. A lot of it is around the sacrificial system and you know, going up to the temple to worship. Um, and we are the temple of God, right? As believers in Jesus, the spirit of God lives within us. And so we don't have to perform those rituals. Um, but I think that there is a beauty in celebrating the Jewish feasts and, uh, and observing some of the things around them. Um, so the, the Feast of Purim, for instance, that is the Jewish sort of uh, costume feast. They dress up as Haman and Mordecai and Esther and they put on like ancient Israeli garb and the kids get all dressed up and they'll put on masks and everything um, to kind of represent the Israelites going out to like kill people, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, but it's sort of like their take uh, on their own feast, right? Um, I think it would be kind of cool if, if we celebrated that instead of, you know, celebrating the Day of the Dead and Satan. Like, I don't understand why Christians still celebrate Halloween. It doesn't make sense. Um, I've heard from Messianic Jews that we should be practicing them because during the millennial reign, we will do all these things again. So I'm a little confused on it. It's very likely. Um, again, you know, when God gave the feasts to the Jews, they were representative of the stuff that happens in heaven. So these feasts occur in heaven right? Just the same way that, you know, the temple of God that was given to Solomon to build and the tabernacle are set up like the temple in heaven where God is at. They're poor, you know, they're dark, they're dimly, uh, dim examples of what's actually in heaven with God. Um, but they're representations that allow us to honor him on earth. So by all means, I think 
celebrating the feast is fine, but it should not become something that we are so religious about that we end up acting like Orthodox Jews. Um, we're not supposed to say that, you know, you can't be a Christian because you don't celebrate Passover. That's not what it's about. It's about relationship with Jesus, right? Um, and if celebrating the feast gets in the way of that, then, you know, God says in the Old Testament, I despise your feast because your heart is not in it. So if our hearts are not in worshiping him and serving him with everything that we have, then it's kind of pointless, right? Um, so we're supposed to do it because we want to do it, because we love him and we find joy in it. Um, and if we don't find joy in it, then there's no point in doing it because it's not going to honor God if we're just being, you know, lip service and stuff, right? Um, do you know anything about the red heifer? I don't understand it. They said one was just born. Yeah, so the red heifer, according to the sacrificial system for, you know, the Old Testament, um, they use the, I think it's the ashes of the red heifer, um, and I don't remember exactly what or why, but anyway, it has to be a pure bred red heifer. There cannot be any spot or blemish on it. It has to be maximum three years old, I think. Um, and then they have to sacrifice it and take, they take the ashes and the ashes are used in a ritual. I don't remember. I'd have to look it up just to remind myself. Um, but that's why they need to be able to do this ritual in order to, I think it's purify the temple or, um, prepare it for God or prepare their sacrifices for God. Um, and so without the red heifer, they literally cannot go forward with any of their sacrifices. That's why it's such a critical thing. Um, and for them to have had one recently that they're checking still for blemish, that's pretty crazy. Um, but we know, we know that all of the stuff is ready to go for the third temple, um, for its building and stuff. So that it's literally just waiting on, you know, the okay to build it. Yes, it would be a, an end time sort of prophecy. Um, is the Sabbath Saturday and is it wrong to worship on Sundays? Honestly, I don't think God cares <laughs> when you worship. Um, it, as long as you are worshiping in spirit and truth, right? Now, it's important. It Like he says, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. We're supposed to take a day of rest. That's biblical. Um, but when we take that day of rest in our culture today, so many different people have crazy work schedules and they cannot pick and choose when they take their rest. Some people don't get a Sabbath day for, you know, weeks on end. They work straight in the oil fields up north and stuff, right? So I don't, you know, the Lord knows where the heart is. It's less about the action. It's less about when we do certain things and it's more about how we do them. If we are honoring God with our hearts fully, then he knows. He knows the heart of man. Um, yeah, the, so the people who typically call Sunday worship pagan, um, I think, I can't remember, it's a, it's a Christian, a Christian cult of sorts um, that is really adamant about how, you know, Sunday's pagan, it's the mark of the beast. Seventh-day Adventist, I think it might be. Um, but anyhow, it's not biblical. So, and Jesus did rise on Sunday, yes. So he was, he was crucified on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. Um, and that's why our day for Easter changes all the time in accordance with the Jewish calendar, right? So, and their, um, their observance, I think it was Passover, right? Yeah. But, <clears throat> but yeah, 
anybody who's claiming that, you know, worshipping on a Sunday is a pagan ritual and that you're being deceived is just, they're deceived. <laughs> so, I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Well, guys. For sure, yeah. Glad to be able to answer some questions. Yes, thanks, Holly. <laughs> thanks, Holly. I was keeping an eye on the clock here. I've got three minutes, I think, um, before time runs out. So I can take, like, maybe one more question if we have time for it. Otherwise, um, I think this is kind of the conclusion for the night. I'm excited to, you know, dive into what Jesus says next time in the rest of chapter five, because it's going to be, it's going to be good um, looking at his rebuttal to the Pharisees. So, yeah. Okay, guys. Well, I will see you next week then. Thanks for sticking around. Um, and don't forget, keep in the Word of God daily um, and keep your conversation with Him going. It's really important right now. There's a lot of people who are under spiritual attack um, and are getting discouraged. So don't get discouraged. Just recognize that a lot of people are going through the same thing. Um, so have a blessed week and I will see you guys, Lord willing, next Friday for another live. So I'll see ya.